I don't think any form of repentance, whether it's about your own history of racism, like, like I, I, I have, or just, you know, about a small thing. I don't think there's, there's any form of repentance that, that, that truly comes without transparency, transparency Mm -hmm. before ourselves, before our community, before God. And so, um, you know, if, if my form of transparency is maybe overly public, uh, my hope and my prayer is that it might anger and confuse some people, but man, I hope it encourages and pushes other people to be bold in their own repentance and in their own transparency. Welcome to Shake the Dust, Leaving Colonized Faith for the Kingdom of God, a podcast of KTF Press. I'm Cy Hoekstra, here with Jonathan Walton and Susie LaHood. Today, we're interviewing Chuck Armstrong, a church planner and writer in New York City. Originally from a town of about 150 people in Northeast Kansas, he now lives in Hell's Kitchen with his family, where he pastors Hope Church Hell's Kitchen. Chuck also had a prior career in talk radio, and he wrote a long article after the death of Rush Limbaugh, chronicling his journey into and out of conservative media. That article is linked in the show notes, and we suggest you give it a read. We talked to him about that article, why he was attracted to the toxic politics of talk radio, how he found his way out through his faith and some very patient friends, and a whole lot more. Remember to subscribe to our blog at ktfpress.com to get access to our weekly newsletter, which is a regular roundup of media around culture, faith, and politics worthy of your time and attention. You will also get writing from the three of us and bonus episodes of this show. Your subscription supports this show and upcoming book projects. And if you're not in a financial place to subscribe to the blog, we totally understand. You can support us by going to ktfpress.com and signing up for the free mailing list subscribing to this podcast, and rating and reviewing this show wherever you're listening. All those things are really helpful to us, too, and we appreciate it. Without further ado, here's the interview with Chuck. Chuck Armstrong, thank you so much for being with us on Shake the Dust. How are you doing today? Hey, man, I'm good. Thank you uh, so much for having me. This is really a privilege. I We uh, feel the same about you being here, and this article that you've written, which we've mentioned already, is fantastic, and um, we just want to hear uh, more and hear more of your wisdom on this subject, and so I just want to jump right in and say, you know, at the beginning of the article, you start by mentioning how, you know, Rush Limbaugh, who the article is kind of primarily about, was just involved in your life all the time. You were hearing him, not just like with your parents in the car, but you were listening to him on your own, even as a kid. And so I think we should just start out by asking, you know, what is it that you found about his show and others like it so attractive? What exactly did you feel like you were getting out of it when you were listening to him? Yeah, that is a, uh, it's a good question. And I think as I've thought about it, uh, you know, as I, as I've reflected on, on my kind of upbringing, as I've reflected on just my life, in conservative talk radio, I, I think why I, I really was first attracted to it was it felt like he was speaking to me. Now, I'm, I'm young when I'm first listening, so I think more realistically, it felt like he was speaking to my dad or to my brother, my older brother, or, or, or to my family, you know, whoever it is. And, and I think I connected with that because I wanted to kind of like be in. I wanted to be smart enough to carry a conversation about politics. I wanted to be, 
you know, witty enough to laugh at, at the jokes that Rush would crack or the parody songs that he would play. You know, I just, <laughs> I just, I, I, I wanted to, I, I felt like I, I, I needed to be part of that. And so I think listening to it made me feel closer to that and definitely made me feel smarter. You know, I think, I think I was able to, to say that, yeah, I'm a political junkie or I'm a news junkie because I listened to, to radio, not because I was consuming much, but because I was simply listening to radio. So it was, it was in a lot of ways connected to like your specific community and your family, even though you were listening to a guy who was talking to millions of people all around the country, like it felt localized and personal to you. Yeah, I mean, listen, that's that's the best best radio is uh, when the host sounds like he is speaking to you and not that he's speaking to yeah the, the millions of people across the country that, that are listening, but he's speaking directly to you and yeah. to your you know, situation, your context, whatever it is. And, and, you know, Rush too, regardless if he was broadcasting from New York City or Florida or wherever, he was born in Missouri, he was born in the Midwest. And so, you know, so was I. And so there was that kind of uh, connection too, I think. So Chuck, I'm from the South, so I call you Pastor Chuck. I'm going to go back and forth because like, <laughs> I hear my mom in the background being like, you better call that man Pastor. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'll but, take it, I'll take it. Yeah, so uh, I've listened to Rush Limbaugh. I've, I've listened to talk radio. I've listened to like, I'm from Southern Virginia, like these things were playing in the background when I was a kid too. And something that I'm, I'm wondering is like the ease with which like racism, misogyny and Republican, like conservative politics, even, you know, some Republicans say, oh, it's not Republican politics, but like the, the way that, you know, Rush Limbaugh would just go back and forth between these things. Um, and like, could you could you talk a little bit about like if you were or how you were processing like the racism he would share or the misogyny he would share? Particularly, like I think you were you would probably be around like listening like prime age when he would talk about Hillary Clinton. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's that's the that was kind of the hard part about <clears throat> writing all of this and telling the story because it made me confront my past and it made me confront you know listening to someone like rush and laughing when i heard jokes you know or um even if i didn't understand them you know i think i mentioned in the article hearing you know parody songs about bombing iraq and uh and i can still sing those parody songs in my head i have no idea what they meant when i first heard them and so i think similarly you know, if if I had if I heard Rush crack a joke about Hillary, about you know about feminists, about um, the homeless, about whoever, uh, I the the scary part is that I would have laughed at it. I definitely laughed at it. And <clears throat> if anything, I mean, you use the word superiority. I think I think that's what it did. It, it more emboldened me to to think that. This isn't racism. This isn't misogyny. This guy is a, you know, he's an entertainer. That's always the, kind of the the thing that that I think he fell back on. That he's not a journalist. He's an entertainer, and he's doing his job. And mm-hmm. and so, you know, he wasn't he wasn't my pastor. He wasn't he wasn't my my journalist. He was just a guy entertaining, and and he did so by pushing the envelope and telling jokes. I, you know, that's kind of what what you tell yourself. That's what I told myself. And and the the scary thing is, and the sad thing is, and and really what what drove me to to write much of that is 
it, it, it changes you, man. It, it emboldens mm-hmm. you to, to, to do the same, you know, to people around you, to, to look at people with that sense of superiority. You know, I, I would definitely call it a privilege too. You, you, you look at people with, with a sense of privilege and, and it really, really shapes your perspective. I think for me growing up in the Midwest, listening to Rush, listening to talk radio, you know, I, it really uh, strengthened my own sense of work ethic and the importance of work ethic. And, and really, you know, we're all, we're all equal and it's just whoever's going to work the hardest and that, that's who's going to succeed. And so all of that's just like wound up together. You know, I never, I, I never sort of relegated Rush's racism over here and his misogyny over there and the privilege here, like, it was just all bound up together. Hmm. Thanks for explaining that. Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's it's not much fun to to look back on it and and to think through it, um, but I think it's necessary. It's yeah, it's definitely necessary, and we're glad that you did it. Also, you just said in the middle of that he's he's not my pastor, which is precisely the excuse that people used all throughout Trump's presidency, right? I, I didn't yeah, vote for pastor. I'm voting for yeah. president, right? Like it's, yeah. That's right. Yeah. And I think we, yeah, I mean, it, uh, you know, you, you want to talk about a, a, a real privilege and that's thinking that you can separate your politics from your theology, your politics from your faith, your politics from your, from your vocation or whatever you want to say, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and the reality is no, you know, you don't, you don't have a faith without a politic and you don't have your politics without your faith. And, and and it, it just it, it it seeps into every 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 area of your life. And so, okay, you didn't vote for your pastor, but you voted for this president. And and mm-hmm. in some way that implicates you know your faith, that implicates what you believe and, and how you live your life. And and so I think the the very same thing goes with um, goes with who you listen to and who you know what voices are in your head. I remember this, and you you guys have maybe have seen it since his death, but. Um, a 60 minutes interview with Rush and just point blankly, you know, he was asked, uh, are you a racist? And Rush says, nah, he, he, he leaned back and just laughed. I'm not a racist. And then just kind of moved on. And, you know, it was kind of the typical, I don't have a racist bone in my body type of thing where yeah. if you say you're not, all right, then, then you move on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I just resonate so deeply, um, Chuck, with what you shared about how our, our theology and our politics um, are, are so intertwined and we need to understand the importance of that that interrelationship and um, and really grapple with that. And, and so one other um, piece of your story that we wanted to, to dig into is you talk in your article about how you also grew up a Christian and have remained in the church your whole life. And so I'm, I'm just curious, as you were growing up and sort of imbibing this conservative talk radio um, politics, did you feel that the church that you grew up in affirmed or pushed back on, on some of those narratives and messages that you were being fed? And how did that sort of play out? Yeah, that's a great question. And um Whew, we could we could we could really uh, do some some surgery surgery here. Um, so you know, I, I grew up in my dad's church, and so he's a, he's a pastor and remains a pastor to this day, and um, and is a phenomenal pastor. He's he's uh, bivocational, and so he's really embedded in the community that I grew up in. Everybody knows him, everybody loves him, everybody respects him, 
Uh, you know, he preaches 50 weeks a year. And when he doesn't preach, the, the church takes a vacation Sunday. And it's really <laughs> just, it's a, it's a small, wow. small, yeah. you know, small, small church outside an unincorporated town in uh, Northeast Kansas. And, uh, and, and I, he's working you know, a full-time was, job. And he's working a full-time job. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and so I, I have a, I have a really deep respect for my dad's ministry and the way that he has fulfilled his call. I think that God's placed on him. Um, and then, but, but then, to, you know, to be totally honest, uh, no, you know, I don't really ever remember hearing, you know, social justice type of, of talk or anything like that. And, um, certainly, you know, love your neighbor and that, and that kind of thing. Uh, but never getting into sort of the systemic things, uh, that our country faced, never really pushing into politics or anything like that. Definitely, uh, you know, sticking to preach the gospel type of methodology. And, um, and so, yeah, you know, so I never, so I, I say all that, um, with, you know, with love for my dad and, uh, but with a, with an acknowledgement that what I was listening to, what I was choosing to say Monday through Friday to my friends, the jokes I was telling, the jokes I was laughing at, the, this, you know, superiority that I was, I was building inside of myself based around my work ethic and, and my grades and all of this stuff. Um, I never felt pushed back on any of that. And certainly I kept some of that, you know, maybe some of the more, um, you know, heinous things that I would laugh at or, or say, you know, I kept that secret from my parents, of course, but, um, yeah, I never, you know, I never felt like I shouldn't listen to rush or I shouldn't say this. And yeah. And so it's, it's, it's tough because all of that was wrapped up together. Just like, you know, just like I've been saying, it's, it's, it's all wrapped up together in my, in my own, you know, unique experience of, of growing up in a church that is pastored by my dad, listening to rush, all of that's, you can't separate it. Hmm. I, Oh man, that unlocks so many questions in my head. Um, I'm wondering, like, as you're having these conversations now, like you're on a podcast, you wrote this article, um, you've written other articles and done other podcasts before. Someone commented on the article offering you a book deal softly, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you saw that. Right. But like, so I saw that too. yeah, it's a public thing that you're doing. Um, yeah. so what, what if any pushback now, um, or what do the, what does the dialogue and the conversations look like? Because I admit that, and I acknowledge what you're saying, like, you know, I grew up in a really small town in Southern Virginia and in the way that you're saying the politics and faith are bifurcated, right? as a black person in the South, they are forever together. Right. Absolutely. So in the way that you, you know, grew up not putting them together, like I can't separate them. That's just like the, the ovens we were baked in. Right. Yeah. Um, and so like at the same time, like we're growing and then having conversations with the generation that raised us. Hmm. Right. And so as you're engaging with this stuff publicly, um, what do the conversations look like with your dad? What does it look like to lead a, a congregation that has like anti-racism as a value, right? And like, 
what are some of those like personal relational i mean everybody knows the systemic obstacles like oh you get twitter beef you get facebook messages <laughs> like you get random yeah, yeah. like we know about that but like the reconciliation for most of us is across the kitchen table right so right, yeah. like what like what did those conversations look like planting a church donors seminary alumni like how how does the work you're doing actually impact your life each day who man you guys are uh <laughs> taking the taking the big shots uh welcome to shake the dust <laughs> yeah, that, all right all right all right i get it, I get it. Uh, so yeah you know i mean it's just to be totally frank uh it's tough um you know i'm i moved to new york city uh 11 years ago i interned in new york city a few years prior to that and you know New York City is uh, a lot different than where I grew up, than the farm I grew up on, than than even the the school I went, the college I went to. Um, but for the first couple of years of living in New York, I was working in conservative talk radio. I moved to New York City to work uh, for the biggest news talk radio station at that time in the country, and so I was like, you know, kind of living this. Uh, the secret agent life of, of infiltrating <laughs> the East coast and, but, but remaining true to my values and, and really, you know, uh, championing my, 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 my values. You're a missionary. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. And so, so then as I, as I left that job, I, I went to work for another radio company, uh, much healthier for me and, and a much, much better experience. Um, and then when I left that company and, and went into, into into vocational ministry, then it started. It, it 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 began. Well, you know, I'm I'm still championing my values, but these are my Christian values. These are my my the values of, of my faith. And so, uh, it's, it was just sort of a different uh, celebration because still, a Christian in New York City, the stereotype would be, yeah, you're a missionary, and as that sort of pro as I began to process that and discern exactly what I felt God was calling me to. And, and that really led me with all that had preceded me really led me into um, really committing my life to, to social justice, to justice work, uh, to anti-racism. And uh, so then I began to really embody, I think what some of my friends, some of my family maybe had, had been, um, I don't want to say worried about, but you know what they had kind of stereotyped New York City as. And so mm. all that to be said, I still text with my dad regularly. We, we talk about music. We talk about movies. Um, I will be honest, in the last four years, though, we really don't talk uh, about mm. politics or issues like that. Um, and that's not all on him. I have a hard time, I think, talking to him about that. Um, and I, I blow up, I get, I get angry. I, you know, I get, I get kind of short tempered, uh, with, with some of those conversations. And so just, you know, kind of organically, we have stopped talking about those things, which as you can imagine me working in conservative talk radio previously, it's all we talked about. And so it's, mm -hmm. um, you know, definitely, uh, I haven't lost my dad. Like I said, we're, we're, we're still, we, we still talk, we're still close, but, um, you know, Jonathan, to your point, we 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 separate these things in our lives and in our relationship now, uh, which is a, which is a true you know privilege that I'm able to do that as a white man. And 
that I don't have to talk about these things if I, if I don't want to uh, with, with family or, or with whomever. Um, and, you know, along the way, I've, I've definitely, uh, I, I, I've been, ri- you know, uh, called out for um, talking too much about justice from the pulpit or, or, or talking too much about politics when, the, when, I, when I don't need to be talking about that in church. And so, you know, I strained relationships, strained friendships. Absolutely. I'm, you know, I have to imagine that uh, I've lost or I, I've, ne- I've never even had the opportunity to, to, to fundraise with, with some people or some groups because of that uh, public commitment to anti-racism and, and that kind of thing. But, um, but I'm also not going to, you know, to be totally frank, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say that, uh, you know, woe is me and man, I'm, I'm really suffering guys because uh, all of this, I, I, I keep saying it, but all of this is such a privilege for me as a white man to be able to, to do this. Um, and, and yeah. And so I, I am very aware of, you know, the, the, the price that I pay for, for leaning into this, for, for dedicating my life to this. Uh, and I am also, I strive every day to be more and more aware of still just how little that, uh, costs me compared to, to so many others around me. Thank, thanks for sharing about your family and being honest about that. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's, and I, I, I love my family and I, I'm, if, if they hear this, I'm sure they'll, you know, not appreciate me talking about it, but, uh, you know, I just, I, I, I truly believe as a pastor, but even more than that, as a human being, as a neighbor, as a brother and as a son, and as a father and as a husband, uh, I think, I think the the most we can do is be transparent and be honest. And I don't think, I don't think any form of repentance, whether it's about you know your own hi- history of racism, like like I, I I have, or just you know about a small thing. I don't think there's there's any form of repentance that that, that truly comes without transparency transparency mm-hmm. before ourselves, before our community, before God. And so, um, you know, if, if my form of transparency is maybe overly public, uh, my hope and my prayer is that it might anger and confuse some people, but man, I hope it encourages and pushes other people to be bold in their own repentance and in their own transparency. And can I ask briefly, it sounds like, so you, you have had lots of conversations with your dad about this stuff and at some point it it became no longer productive and the reason i ask this question is because i think a lot of you know a lot of people might hear i i've run up against this with friends or family of mine too like you know you one of the kind of critiques of sort of uh white people who are trying to be progressive but like aren't talking to their own families about stuff right <laughs> like that's yeah, people yeah, are yeah. like oh so you're you're the one who has the in and you're not doing anything and you know you're not stewarding your your privilege and your insider status and all that stuff and mm. I, i'm just wondering how much you've I, I assume that you have thought about that and i'm i'm wondering if you could talk about that balance a little bit because it is hard but i also like find myself wanting to you know press into that yeah critique no yeah it. and i appreciate that um and i'll i'll take that i'll take that critique um 
you know, I'll say that I don't know your circumstances, right? So I'm not saying yeah, yeah, you did bad. (laughs) (laughs) No, but it's still it's still worth you know acknowledging and discussing. And you know, to be honest, yeah, I mean, my own circumstances, it's not like it was an overnight thing. And um, and so what I have learned in my own journey (laughs) is that things take time and I think about kind of the, the 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 beginning point of my you know what I what I say is deconstruction and I know that can be a loaded term sometimes but I also don't know why because it, it's a very simple term to me but just <laughs> deconstructing because <laughs> you know taking apart my past putting it back together and um, you know I started that about eight or nine years ago and 10 years ago, if I heard a pastor say Black Lives Matter from the pulpit, I would have rolled my eyes, man. I would have I would have sent probably a snarky email. I would have, you know, maybe confronted him and, and called him out. And and now 10 years later, I'm I am that guy. Yeah. Like I and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm getting snarky emails and I'm getting called out. <laughs> uh, but and so so I say all that meaning, um, yeah, like certainly don't know everybody's circumstances. I have not flipped a switch saying like, I'm done with my family. I truly believe that God is working and, uh, and he's going to work on his own schedule. And if it took me eight, nine years to get to the point where I feel like, feel comfortable enough to write my story down, Mm -hmm. um, it can, it, it, you know, it might take longer for some other people. And, and so it, it's pushed me into to more of a posture of grace. Um, all that being said, I also, um, I, I'm reminded of something Jamar Tisby wrote in his new book, How to Fight Racism. And uh, he just, he really emphasizes patience and prayer. He gives a lot of tips on how to, you know, to talk to people uh, who you disagree with politically, especially as it, as it relates to, to racial justice. Uh, but at the end of the day, you, it has to be rooted in patience and prayer. And so uh, that's something I have to remind myself too. So maybe I'm not confronting my dad uh, today on this. Am I, praying, am I praying for my dad about this? Am I praying for my relationship with my dad about this? I think that's, those are the kind of things too that, um, that I'm trying to push myself into. Uh, yeah. So, but, but I, I, you know, so I, I really do appreciate that. And um, yeah, everybody's circumstances are different, but again, like not to throw that word out, but you know, what a, what a, what a sincere privilege of mine to be able to, to, to do all of this and to, and to say like, I'm going to talk about X, Y, Z today. I'm not going to talk about it tomorrow. And mm. my life doesn't change a whole lot. And so I recognize that. I, and I just want to thank you for being like, we just pushed you pretty hard on some very personal stuff. So I really appreciate the, the transparency. <laughs> it's not, it's not every day where we, we, that you can hear, um, you know, an honest reflection on something like that. And so we really appreciate it. Um, yeah, someone, someone said to me, you know, what is Christianity if not transparency? And, mm-hmm. uh, I've been thinking a lot about that. And so, you know, I want to obviously want to respect and love, those around me. Um, but also I believe God's put a call on me to, to really dedicate my life to, to justice work, to, to striving toward justice. And so, uh, if that means I'm uncomfortable, others might be uncomfortable. That is a, a, a pretty small, small cost. 
that question is real and valid. Like, why don't you do that? Right. Um, Wait, why don't you do what? I'm so, so like, why don't you confront your family member who you're in relationship with all the time? Right. And, and leverage that privilege and authority and relationship for me. Cause that, that's a very, that's, that's a, that's an emotional ask. Right. Mm. Like I feel dismissed. I feel hurt. Why didn't you fight for me? Right. That's an emotional, uh, that's a visceral desire for us to be protected. Right. In that space that I will never sit across from and be taken seriously, but you're there. Right. Um, but I think the pastoral word there, you know, is that that confrontation without formation is destructive. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, but comfort confrontation like with formation is lovingly disruptive. Hmm. Right. And so being able to have that conversation with your dad or have that conversation with your mom in a way that is loving, like requires the prayer and the patience that Jamar is talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, like we could destroy the shalom that God was working in because like, you know, you have kids and if you weren't talking to your child for years, there is not a day you would not think about that child, right? They engage with that. So, so even for, for people who are listening, who are like, you know, like, why can't we talk with our parents? Like God is working on the people who love us when we live differently from the ways they brought us up. Mm. Like it, I think we have to trust him with that. And like my mom, I did not know that my mom started reading devotionals because she heard me and my brother started going to intervarsity. I didn't know that. Like I found a devotional when she was dying from cancer that my brother gave her like a decade earlier, right? Like that we these we don't know all the things that are happening. And so for the angry, upset people who desire to be seen and felt and heard and by someone with the ultimate privilege born into all that is good, I would say look to Jesus because he had that, right? And then That's he right. gave that for us and so um but in the confrontation I, I really think we need to be formed before we we have those confronting conversations and that and that takes that takes time and it's good to take that time but then to take the opportunity when jesus says to go amen yeah i i, I heard a good no I, I heard a good word from uh, a dear sister um recently and she said the spirit calls us to con- to to convict those around us and not condemn those around us and I've been thinking a lot about that, just this idea of conviction versus condemnation. And Jonathan, I think what everything you just said really speaks to that. Yeah, that was really good. Um, yeah, wisdom and also accountability, I think. Um, yeah, and I just want to say again, Chuck, just reiterate, um, thank you for sharing so openly. I think it's so refreshing and so important because I feel like there's so many folks who can probably relate to your story and are on a similar journey right now, but maybe haven't even progressed as far as you have. And, and what strikes me part of what's so remarkable about this process of, you know, as you referred to it, deconstruction, which again, I acknowledge that that's sort of a loaded term right now, but I, I think I understand what you're referring to. And, um, and I think it's remarkable that you've managed to go through that and still maintain your faith in Christ. And so sort of not throw out the baby with the bathwater and disentangle some of this idolatry and and unhealthiness and some of these lies from from the real message of Christ and the real teaching of Christ. 
and and to come out in a more authentic you know what what i think we would say is a more authentic place of, yeah. of really living for the kingdom and so as someone who's been through that process um first of all i i'm just curious to hear you've kind of alluded to that throughout the interview but um what sort of prompted that initially you talk about a change in geographic location but that it's it would be reductive and simplistic to just point to that obviously there were things that happened that set you on this journey and so yeah what prompted you to rethink your politics and and its relationship to your faith and what steps have you taken personally to really go through that process of essentially sort of the renewing of your mind i think and reshaping your mm. thinking since you left the world of conservative talk radio and the politics that you so strongly professed at at the time <laughs> yeah um you know i wish i i wish i had like a step-by-step guide <laughs> that that captured <laughs> we do you know, too. That captured, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that captured everything i did um because it, it it wasn't like that. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like I woke up one day and I thought, all right, you know what? I'm going to read this book or I'm going to listen to this or um, I'm going to quit this job because I'm so, you know, um, I'm so against this. Uh, though I did change my job, you know, it had a, it wasn't quite as, as um, I wasn't quite as, as, as uh, I wasn't being quite the activist that, you know, I probably wish I, I looked like taking a stand or anything like that. But mm -hmm. um I think God used a lot of those things, a lot of the things you mentioned kind of uh, behind the scenes without me knowing it. So yeah, definitely a geographical change, uh, location change um, was, you know, part of the journey moving from Kansas to New York City uh, mm -hmm. and not just the geographical change. But, uh, you know, when my wife and I moved here, uh, we had zero friends, we had zero family. And so there was a sincere sort of just assessment of, of what community means. What is community? What does that, you know, what does that look like? And, uh, you know, community in New York city, uh, is, is, looks a lot different than, um, than Kansas. Than, than anything. Yeah. yeah. Than anything. <laughs> yeah. Than truly than anything. And you can either avoid it. You can either try to manufacture your own community or you can say, this is the world in which God has placed me now. And, uh, and I'm going to celebrate it. And so that was, so God used people around me. And I don't just mean like, oh, now all of a sudden I had a black friend and, and, and this friend and that friend, like, yeah, all of a sudden diversity was around me in ways that I had never experienced in my life. But it was how these people pushed me and convicted me. I distinctly remember, and I kind of alluded to this in the article. Uh, and this was probably one of the turning points in my life. I was walking with a friend. We were in a small group together and he and I, we had done like a Bible study together. We were just really tight. And, um, we were walking down Amsterdam on, on the Upper West Side. And it was the day after Osama bin Laden was uh, killed. And I remember him talking just so clearly about how disgusted he was at seeing uh, clips on the television of Times Square erupting yeah. in applause and cheers and celebration. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it's this, it's this, uh, this idea of being able to critically think that you can hold in one hand, you know, the heinous acts of, of Osama bin Laden 
and 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 you can lament that, right? You don't you're not justifying anything, but you can also hold in the other hand that celebrating and cheering for the death of a, of an image bearer is also not a good thing and not something we should celebrate. And I had never yeah. thought about that. I'd never I never ever thought about holding things like that in tension. And for whatever reason, it was like an Acts 2 sermon when he said that it pierced my heart. And and it just it made me begin to rethink how I view justice, injustice, what I would, you know, what I would claim to be victory, how I view victory, how I view all of these things. And and in that instance, it was it's obviously connected to patriotism, right? And the country and and that kind of thing. And so I think that also began to sort of push against the the politics of my life and the things that I was listening to every day uh, and, and the, you know, my job that I, that I was going into every day. And so I think that was truly a turning point. And from there, uh, I also, and I, I think I maybe mentioned this in the article too, I'm not sure, but I also around the same time began to read a little more and learn a little more about, you know, this whole faith and work movement and, and what's it mean to, to be a Christian in the workplace and all of that. I never really gave that much thought prior to moving to New York. And, you know, not that that movement or, or those ministries are perfect by any means, but it began to push me to think, how am I listening <laughs> to this radio, to, to these shows? And not just listening, but like truly kind of being part of the ecosystem and then going to church on Sundays and listening about this Christ and then going to small group and, 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 you know, being in community with such a beautiful group of men and women, how do I reconcile these things? And so it just, it kind of, it kind of broke me. It just kind of like really chipped away at, at me and at everything I held everything I had, I found my value. And I moved to New York city for this job. I moved to New York city for this, you know? And, and here I am thinking like, wait a second, maybe I, maybe I, at least the way I'm wired, maybe I can't hold these things in tension and maybe I need to, uh, to move on. And so, you know, I would say that the, the friend of mine, you know, really beginning to understand this idea of faith and work theology, uh, which I admit, you know, my own understanding of it, was far from perfect or in anything like that. But, um, and then from there it was just, it was just leaning into it and it was not avoiding it. And it was thinking like, you know what, it's okay. If I grew up a Republican and had super conservative views, it's okay. If I, if I, if I've changed a little, it's okay. If I want to, uh, abolish the death penalty now, as opposed to, you know, thinking eye for an eye and all of that. And, and thinking, you know, if you, you know, if you're, if you're a criminal, you're going to, get caught and you, you pay the penalty. And, and that's that, that's as simple and clear cut as our justice system is. You know, I started thinking, well, wait a second, maybe it's not. And maybe it's okay that I, I, I change my views and I read about things that challenge that those views. And so it was just this whole journey of that. And that all of that coincided with me going to seminary and then, you know, sitting in seminary classes with men and women in New York City, from incredibly different backgrounds, uh, all of us processing, you know, theology and history differently and together, uh, really pushed me deeper and deeper into it as well. And so, um, a, probably a turning point in that moment was, 
in a in a in an, in an, in an ecclesiology class, um, I wrote a, a paper about the ecclesiological implications of racial reconciliation, and so that that was trying to unpack this idea of well, okay, you're a church or you're a denomination, and you you repent and you acknowledge and you, you, you pursue reconciliation, what are the actual implications for your church because mm-hmm. of that? And I won't let you read the paper cause it's, it's, you know, it was like, I, you know, I was like a, the, my first year in seminary. So it, it, it's, it's not great, but it pushed me to read <laughs> books like divided by faith and, and, and other things where I began to like really, really see all of these things that I think I was wrestling with in my head and in my heart and with my community. Now I'm seeing like, oh, here's a sociological work on this, on the systemic injustice that has preceded me. Oh, here's the history of this, that kind of thing. And so, yeah, it's, you know, it's a, it's a weird twisty turny journey for sure. But, um, that kind of answers your question, Susie, in a pretty convoluted <laughs> way, I fear. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> no, it does. Because really, I was, you know, just asking what that that journey has looked like. So I, I appreciate you not trying to reduce it to a simple, you know, four step program. Um, yeah, sure. thank you. That that rings yeah. really true. So um, as as a pastor, do you have thoughts on when folks should take the step of leaving a church over its handling of questions about race? Yeah, I mean, I, I love the question. Um, and I'll just say two things before I give the answer, because apparently I, I really like to talk. And so I, I really like talking with you. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, the first is, uh, I don't think there's a formula for anybody. And so I think, yeah. you know, as, as has been discussed, we are all on different journeys. We don't know the circumstances. We, we don't know how God is working behind the scenes. And so there's just, I, I don't think there's a formula. Um, mm-hmm. But the second thing I want to say is I say that as a, as a white man. And, and so uh, I don't ever want to put anybody in a place where they feel like they should stay in an unhealthy environment or in an environment where they're not, not only are they not being fed, but, but, perhaps they're being dehumanized in, in some way. Um, you know, I don't ever want them to think like, well, I heard this pastor once say, you know, I, there's no formula. And so maybe I should, I should stick around to see how God's working in, in behind the scenes. I, I just think, you know, I, I have to, I have to admit that if I'm talking about when do you leave as a white man, the cost for me is, is much different. And so, um, all that being said, uh, I, Man, that's what a what a question. Uh, I would I would try to walk with someone else, whether it's inside the church or outside the church, someone you trust that you can share what, exactly what's happening. That you can share. This is the way my pastor is speaking. This is the way you know uh, an elder has answered questions. This is you know the de- dehumanizing language that is used in small groups, um, so that you're not processing it by yourself. You're processing it in community so that you have support uh, from someone you trust and someone you love and someone who loves you. Um, But, but truly I I think if, if the church is the gathering of, of the saints and, or if that's partly what church is um, and it is also, you know, the gathering of, of, of 
God's people to welcome others in, right? You think of Acts 2, you think of the end of Acts 2 where um, the world takes notice, right? The world takes notice at what the church is doing, what this brand new community of God is doing as they're breaking bread, as they're, as they're sharing resources, as they're living together, as they're worshiping together. Uh, it, we're told that, that, that all, they found favor in everyone's eyes and the Lord added to their number daily. And so, you know, if your church is doing the opposite of that, where they're not holding you in favor because they refuse to acknowledge very real objective things that are destroying your life or that are, that are seeking to destroy your life or your livelihood, um, I can't imagine what that would feel like and to feel pressure to stay in that. Um, I think there is a moment that you have to consider your own health, your own spiritual health, your own emotional health, uh, and, and, and say farewell. I don't think God is calling me to uh, remain in a toxic, dangerous environment. Um, but maybe it's different if you're a white person and maybe you have more voice inside the church and maybe you are called to stay to try to steer the ship, as it were. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I have a hard time thinking about that, too, because what I, what I have heard from uh, Jamar Tisby, um, he, he told me once uh, that if by now, this is this is we we this we, we talked this was two days after the the insurrection on the on the capitol so uh if by now your pastor your church your community group whatever if by now they're not talking about this there's not much hope yeah Mm-hmm. If by now, if after last year, if after George Floyd, if after Ahmaud Arbery, if after Breonna Taylor, if after all of this, they're still saying, well, I can't speak into this because I don't know enough about this, or I'm just going to preach the gospel or whatever. I don't know what it would take for them to, for, for that church to, 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 to change its direction. And so um, I think that is, if, if, if I could, if, that is maybe one of the benefits of all of the of the terrible, terrible, destructive things we have seen in the last twelve months, is that we can clearly see how God is using people and how people are are, are being faithful to what God is doing, or how they're not being faithful to the work that God has called them to. And so we should take notice of that, I think. And I think that should definitely be a significant part, a primary part in our discernment to whether we should leave or not. All that was um, great. I, I really liked the point about um, having someone from the outside to talk to that you said at the beginning, just because I think that's kind of a dynamic, you know, it's just going to be easier for someone who's who's outside of your situation to see clearly what's happening, right? Like, it, it would be That's the right. same in any like personal relationship that has become like toxic or abusive. It's going to be, and it's going to be the same thing in, in a church setting, right? People who are looking at it from the outside are just going to give you insight that you otherwise don't have. So people that you trust and who are wise, I think that's, that's 
Um, I just want to emphasize how important that is in addition to everything else you said, which is also important. Jonathan, do you want to do, I, I want to know the answer to the just breach the gospel question. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was so, thinking about that too. <laughs> so I, I, oh man, how do I even frame this question? If someone, you know, you're back in that church in Kansas and they say to you like, hey, Chuck, I've known you since you were a kid. Like, why don't you just preach the gospel? Who, um, yeah, I, um, I mean, I think, you know, the kind of the, the smart aleck in me wants to say, well, I am just preaching the gospel. Come on, brother. Come on, sister. Um, but, but truly, you know, I would, I would, I think I would ask them and I'm curious about this actually, I would ask them, what does that mean? Cause I have been, you know, I, I've, I've preached, um, not at, not at our church plant. Our church plant, you know, is obviously very publicly anti-racist, but I've preached elsewhere and I've, um, I've brought up slavery or I've brought up, uh, internment camps, um, in America. I've brought up, uh, and early on in, in COVID, I, I, I preached and I included some illustrations of the anti-Asian racism that was occurring at the beginning of the pandemic. And, uh, and I would receive emails or, or things like that, um, saying just that, you know, that has no place in the, in, from the pulpit. You can, you can talk about that on Facebook. You can, you know, talk about that over coffee, but not from the pulpit. You just need to be preaching the gospel. And when I push and I ask, well, what does that mean to you? What does that mean to just preach the gospel? Uh, I've, to be honest, and I'm not saying, you know, this is, I'm not implicating anybody. I've never really gotten an answer to that. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, and so I take that as sort of affirmation to this isn't on some level, they are just repeating something they have heard elsewhere. So you mentioned, you know, use the word disciple. They have been discipled elsewhere by uh, Ben Shapiro, by uh, Jordan Peterson, by uh, fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. And they have heard this phrase, just preach the gospel, or they have heard this boogeyman of critical race theory or or whatever you want to say. And um, when, when you're, when, when pushed into that, it's sort of a, they, they're, they're, they're sort of an admission that, well, yeah, I guess you are preaching the gospel. I just don't like the politics in it. And that's what it gets down to. Mm-hmm. And so um, what I have, and I'm not saying I do this perfectly when I, when I preach or anything like that, but uh, one word of advice that has been given to me is that Christians should be more and more political. We should not be partisan. And so uh, we should not be scared of being political. In fact, we should, we should welcome the opportunities to be political um, we should not welcome the opportunities to be partisan. And so those conversations, you know, they're had. And I think what I realize is the criticism that I receive for being partisan is actually a very, very partisan critique. And where they've been discipled is very, very partisan. And it's not rooted in the gospel. It's not rooted in the Bible. It's rooted in something that they've heard, something that they've been told. And so I think, you know, for me, and I'm saying this as much to myself as I am to anybody listening, I think, you know, I think that's, if someone says that to you, what an incredible opportunity to, to ask them what that means and have a conversation. 
mm-hmm. and to to maybe maybe push back on something that has been discipled into them and maybe asking that question maybe just asking them what do you mean by that is going to push them to cr- more critically think about that about that phrase about why they were angry from what they heard from the pulpit in the first place mm. That, uh, so just as a a follow-up comment, um, it sounds like what you're talking about is a, is a radical differentiation, right? So you like hearing what is the gospel, like, or just preach the gospel could be heard as an attack, like as a speaker, as a teacher, a leader, someone coming and to me, like as a preacher of the gospel, as an evangelist, like your question, I would feel my integrity is questioned. Like, what do you mean? I'm not doing That's right. Anything, you know, um, but like it sounds like what you're saying. There's a there's a patient um, response. That's a that that is a product of being differentiated from the message in a healthy way. That is, I mean, I would I would like to be mature in that way in these moments. Um, Me to too, be- brother. Because <laughs> I, I, Willie Jennings talks about the uh, Dr. Willie Jennings at Yale Divinity School, now formerly at Duke. Um, he said, you know, there's a there's a jousting that happens intellectually downstream of the Enlightenment, right? Like Western uh, thought, where it's like, well, I've got to beat you in this argument. Um, that's right. That's right. But in, but in that moment, it's not about the relate it's not about winning the arm argument it's about jesus being lord and being understood mm-hmm. and I, I appreciate mm-hmm. that that answer a lot so thanks mm-hmm. well yeah and you know you mentioned dr jennings and he you know he says critique should always aim at communion and that mm-hmm. is hard to embody <laughs> it's hard to embrace hard. but yeah. you know if you if you think about yeah if you think about that question or why someone's asking this you know Okay, maybe they're maybe they're critiquing you to to tear you down, but you know we're in a position then that we could critique back or we could push back with the hope, with the intent of communion with one another, and that might be a an idealistic, lofty goal. But man, what a beautiful what a beautiful picture of everything you just said, Jonathan. Amen. Yeah, this has been. Uh, Great, Chuck. We really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your wisdom with us. And um, just thank you so much from all of us. Yeah, I mean, seriously, what a what a privilege. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening. And please remember to subscribe to this podcast and rate and review it wherever you are listening. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at KTF Press. Our theme song is Citizens by John Guerra. Our podcast art is by Jacqueline Tam. And we will see you next week. Today we're interviewing Chuck not Chuck Colson, sorry. Uh, <laughs> Today, back from the dead, dead, is Chuck Colson. <laughs> wow, y'all did not tell me necromancy was part of this. Wow. All right. We <laughs> have done the seance, and right. Chuck Colson is here with us today. <laughs>
we recorded it over Zoom because Zoom can do that. <laughs> it's actually a portal. Please light your incense before we begin. <laughs> Charge your crystals in a warm Charge place for crystals. at least 14 days. Beginning at the solstice and ending. No. At no. 